Amen. Well, good morning. It is so good to see you all in this room. This has been a long time coming. So we have been praying. We have been waiting. It has been six months since we have been back in our sanctuary, and here we are this morning. I don't know if you can tell, but I am extremely excited about being back here in this place this morning. Um, I enjoyed our time in the room uh, behind us. It was a wonderful time together. I'm thankful for the space that God has provided, but it is so nice to be back in our sanctuary. I was talking to uh, some of the uh, elders and leaders over at uh, Journey Church, and I think they were as excited as I was about being back in this place because uh, I was able to sit down with Pastor Dan and tell him, brother, you are no longer on a time limit. You can let it rip. And so his elders looked at me with concern, and one of them even asked, well, what do you mean? And I said, if he wants to preach for two hours, he can let it go. And so, by God's grace, they may still be meeting right now. I don't know. We will find out at the end of this service. So anyway, it is good to be back. It is good to see you all. Um, I am thankful and excited to be back. For those of you who prayed uh, for our journey as we traveled as a family, we had a wonderful time. Um, Probably the only negative I can say about uh, our vacation time away is the fact that I thought when we went back to Atlanta, we would experience some cold weather. Uh, The reality is it was actually warm every day we were there. Um, I think there were only two days total, one day in Dothan, one day in Atlanta, where it was actually cold. And believe it or not, it's colder here today than it was any time we were on our vacation. So um, welcome to winter. I hope you enjoy the next day and a half of it, and then uh, we'll see what happens from there. So again, it is so good to see you all. Thank you for your prayers, and I'm thankful to um, our team, to Pastor Corey, uh, Pastor Ricky, for them willingly and faithfully stepping in and leading us uh, last Sunday. And so it is good to be back. It is good to see you all, and I am thankful and excited about what God is going to do. Well, as you can see, we are clearly back in the sanctuary Um, It is an exciting time to be here. As you can clearly see, a lot has changed. A lot has remained the same in here. Uh, Some of you guys have been oohing and on over the building, and I'm thankful for that. Um, I would ask that you not scratch the paint up yet. This is not the time to mark your spot on the wall. Uh, Please don't do that. We still have some work that needs to be done, but overall, we're at a point where we felt comfortable as a leadership and with building and grounds blessing that we could be back in this room, and so here we are, and I can think of no better place to be than to start a new year right back in our sanctuary worshiping God, because just as we sang a moment ago, we're not here because we have a fancy building, and we're not here because we have fresh carpet. We're here because of Jesus Christ. All that we have is because of Jesus Christ. All that we have been given, all that we have been through, all that has taken place is because of Jesus Christ. He alone is Lord. It's not the building that draws people. It's not the space and the stuff that happens that draws people. It is simply the God of the Bible and the Lord whom we serve. That is why we gather. And so my heart and my prayer as we enter into 2020 is that would be our heart's cry as well as a church. Now, I was up here yesterday with uh, 
Corey and Ricky and Jonathan was with us. We were looking around the building. I had just gotten back in town and wanted to put my eyes on everything and see what was going on. And Jonathan, by God's grace, reminded me that it was this time a year ago, at the beginning of 2019, that we started a journey through Nehemiah, and we had focused that entire time on rebuilding. Now, I thought we were just going to walk through Nehemiah and talk about rebuilding the hearts of the people within the church. Little did we know at the time that we would actually be rebuilding a part of our sanctuary. So, uh, thanks to Jonathan's reminder of that, uh, we're going to start a little differently here in 2020 and focus on who we are as a church and what it is that we are called to as a church. So for the next three weeks, before we jump back into our Mark series, I really want to focus some time on what it is that God has called us to as a church. Now, some of you who were a part of the Sunday evenings when I first came as your pastor may have heard similar messages that I'm about to preach over the next three weeks, but I've been told by this group specifically that these were messages that not only bared repeating, but were messages that needed to be shared on a Sunday morning. So, with that being said, as we enter into 2020, I want us to focus on the simple phrase that we are church. You see, because here's the reality. Back in August when we sat in this room under three inches of water, we realized that the road before us was going to be long. But we also recognized that in that moment, at the end of the day, this is merely a building. The church is the body of believers. The reality is we could have church inside, and we praise God for that, especially on days like today or in days in the middle of August when it's 90 degrees with a thousand percent humidity. But the truth is the body of believers can gather anywhere for the glory of God and for the purpose of worshiping Jesus Christ. So what I want to do over the next three weeks is I really want us to dig in and focus in on who we are as the church, who we are as the body of believers, and where I believe the Lord is going to take us through 2020. Now, when you begin to think about the church, it's quick to say that in order to be a part of a church, you need to become an active member of that church. Now, i got to be honest with you. I've heard a lot of prominent pastors and speakers speak to active membership, and that's a growing concern and a bit disconcerting for me because I personally believe that as a believer in Jesus Christ, it's actually unfortunate for us to even talk in terms of being an active member versus a passive member. Because you see, the reality is, according to the Word of God, you are either a member of the local body or you are not. But it's unfortunate that these are the times that we currently are called to live in. So you see, as an active member of the body, as an active member of the church, we as believers in Christ are called to take some sort of ownership within the church. You see, the church, as we see throughout the New Testament, becomes a personal place and a personal space for us to be able to gather in. It's a space where we come together and serve together. It becomes a place where we laugh together and we cry together. It's a place where we celebrate the victory 
mysteries in God together, yet at the same time, we still worship God in the midst of the defeats, in the midst of the tragedies. A church is a place where we should faithfully and willingly, as long as God allows, be a place where we grow old together unless the Lord calls us away. You see, the church, and again, I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about the body. The church is an extension of our family. You see, when it comes to our family, we're not always going to get along. We're not always going to agree. In fact, there may be times where we have arguments, but here's the reality. We don't talk bad about family to others. The reality is when we become a part of the church, a part of the local body of believers, then that body of believers becomes interwoven into our lives to the point where even the space and the property becomes sentimental to us. Yet in our church as members, we find ourselves as a church that considers itself to be congregationalist. Now, here's how I want to define that phrase or word, if I could. You see, we, as a Southern Baptist church, we are an autonomous church. We are a church led by pastors and leaders under the accountability of God and His Word. And so, as members of the body here locally, we are to actively attend, actively serve, and actively support for the glory of God within the community and context that the Lord has called us to. You see, this is the call of every believer who is a part of the local church. Now, that is generally speaking. So, what I want us to do is I want us to take a look at our church here at Southside Baptist Church. I want us to take a look at what makes us unique and what makes us who we are. So for the next three weeks, I want to examine some phrases that I hope and pray will define us as we move forward into 2020 together. So the first thing I want to start with is here at Southside, I want us to be together as one. Now, many of you have probably heard me repeat this phrase over and over and over again over the course of this past year, but I still want that to be a phrase that drives us into this next year. You see, the reality is we are now back in the sanctuary. We are now back together in worship. So here we are, one family with one voice in one faith under one accord, worshiping the one true and living God. In other words, like we've said before, it should be exciting for us to be a part of service in the morning because we have the privilege, we have the blessing, we have the opportunity to be able to come together in faith in order to worship Jesus Christ. So when we come to this place in worship, we come waiting with eager anticipation for what it is that Christ will do in our midst. Now, if we're here for any other reason, why are we here? 
You see, the truth is we are called to be here together as one. Now, I can't take credit for this phrase. In fact, I noticed last night when I posted about our time of prayer, and I ended it with the phrase, together as one, calling um, whoever was available to come join us for prayer this morning from 7.15 to 7.45, which, by the way, we had a very sweet time of prayer here this morning. I I ended that phrase by saying together as one, and quickly, one of my friends who grew up in the uh, 70s and 80s quickly posted a YouTube video from the old Christian metal band Striper. Now, if you don't know who they are, God bless you and just keep it that way, okay? Um, Because music was a little different then than it is now. Now, if he were here today, he would vehemently disagree with me on this point, but that's okay. We are still brothers in Christ. Now, I did not pick up this phrase from that particular video or that particular context. No, the first time I heard this, I was actually at a high school in South Carolina. You see, one of my dear friends um, who I had an opportunity to coach football with asked me to come out and share with their football team in South Carolina as they prepared uh, for what was going to be a big region game for them. And so I had the opportunity to stand before roughly 140 football players proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. But as I got there and I walked through the locker room and I saw uh, the pregame shirts they had on, the signs on the wall, even what was written across their bus, I noticed this phrase, as one. And so I asked the head coach, and I asked my friend about it, who at the time was the defensive coordinator. I said, what does this phrase mean for your football team? And this is what they told me. They said, we say that here, this team, we are as one. In other words, when we move, when we win, when we lose, and when we work, we do it together as a team. As one, we are all in or we are not at all. Because if we are not all bought in together, then this program will fail. Now I heard that and I thought to myself, wow, the things you learn from a football field and how they can quickly be applied to the church. Because you see, this is how we are to be as a church, together as one. Now in Scripture, we are going to see how being together as one, being as one, being unified, led to a mighty victory for the glory of God. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you now to turn with me to 1 Samuel. This is 1 Samuel chapter 14. And I want us to see and hear today the story of Jonathan and how he worked together as one to bring God glory and ultimately defeat the Philistines. So as you're turning there, once you get there, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, we read. And one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave of Megron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. 
and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Seneh. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Gibah. Now Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you for your word. We thank you for your truth. God, we thank you for the opportunity that we have this morning to, to not only be in this place, to be back in this room, but Father, to be here to worship you. And so, Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had to worship you in song. Father, we thank you for the blessing that we have to worship you through, through giving. And God, we pray now that you would prepare our hearts and our minds as we prepare to worship you through the study of your word. Father, we ask that you would speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, tune our ears and our eyes to your truth. And God, may you be glorified in these next moments that we have together. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, just to set the scene for you, we clearly have a battle that's taking place between King Saul, his son Jonathan, and the Philistines. Now, Jonathan and his father, King Saul, are clearly fighting the Philistine army. Now, this is important because Philistines aren't your normal type of people. Philistines were actually 
considered giants among men, okay? These were fairly large people. So I don't want you to think normal battle circumstances where a man who's roughly 5'10 to 6 foot was fighting another man who might have been roughly 6 feet to 6'2. No, this was much greater than that. This was a, an empire that stood before them. These were mighty warriors who were bred for war, okay? It's like if I could compare it to anything right now, it would almost be the equivalent of me and Ted, I see you, brother, me and him standing together with Dickie, I see you, and brother Daryl over here, and the four of us fought against Miss Jacob, okay? There is clearly a size advantage that has now taken place, all right? Or if Miss Jacob said, no, I'm going to bow this one out, I'd rather someone else step in that place, and Pastor Corey stood up. Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I believe Pastor Corey could put up a good fight, but against four much bigger fellas, it's a bit different. And so that's what the Israelites were faced against when facing this massive army that was prepared for war. In fact, if you flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 13, we see clearly that the Israelites are heavily outnumbered and heavily outgunned. In fact, when you read verse 5 of 1 Samuel 13, it says, and the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Now we get over to 1 Samuel 14 and we see the Israelites with King Saul had roughly 600 men. And then you go back to chapter 13 and you see that not only was it about 600 men, but these were 600 men armed with farm equipment. Okay? So just imagine that for a moment. Again, if we could equate that to anything, let's say all of a sudden a group of us who might be farmers decided to load up with our pitchforks and our farming equipment and I went and grabbed my weed eater or my clippers or whatever and we decided to march on MacDill Air Force Base. Clearly we are now heavily outnumbered and heavily outgunned. And so that's what the Israelites were faced with. In fact, we also learn in 1 Samuel 13 that the Israelites were so poor in their weaponry that they actually had to go to the Philistines to ask them to sharpen their weapons. Now think about that for a moment. The Israelites were completely outmatched. And so when you look again at 1 Samuel 13, verses 6 and 7, we see that the Israelites, knowing they're outmatched, knowing they're outgunned, they escaped from the Philistines. We learned that they went and hid themselves in caves, and they hid themselves in other people's homes, and then they even hid themselves amongst the cisterns. Now, if you don't know much about Old Testament study and Israelite life, then understand this. If you are a soldier hiding in a cistern, you have completely given up. Okay? If you don't know what a cistern is, that's basically our equivalent to an outhouse. They were hiding amongst our garbage. They were hiding 
in our bathrooms in the midst of the mess because they were so afraid. They simply fled the field and fled the land. And this is where we find Saul and Jonathan. We quickly learn that Jonathan, with his armor bearer, his shield bearer, ended up leaving and now was separated from King Saul and the rest of the Israelite army by roughly four miles. So there is some significant difference by the time we get to our story with Jonathan and his shield bearer in a cave versus where King Saul and the rest of the army is. So we get back into 1 Samuel 14 and then notice what happens in verse 6 again as we read. Jonathan said to the young man carrying his armor, his shield bearer, the two of them together, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And then notice what a shield bearer says in verse 7. He says this to, to Jonathan. Hear these words. Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Now let's just think about this for a moment. Because when you get to verse 6 and 7 of these 15 verses that we've read together, this is the heart and soul of 1 Samuel 13 and 14. Now let's just look at what's happening. We have Jonathan alone with his shield bearer facing thousands upon thousands of men, heavily outnumbered, heavily outgunned, and notice Jonathan's plan. He looks at his shield bearer and he says, I think we can take them. Let's go attack the Philistines. That is what we are going to do today. Now, listen, pay attention to this because we quickly learn that Jonathan had a sword. In fact, we know that King Saul had his sword. We know that Jonathan had a sword. They might have been the only two Israelites with swords. Everybody else was fighting with farm equipment. Now, clearly, a weapon. But when you are facing an army that numbers the sands on the seashore, and they are heavily armed, they have their own shields, they have their own swords, they have their own spears, clearly one sword is not going to get it done. One sword against a thousand, you the odds are stacked in your favor. But then notice the shield bearer here. Because you see, when you read shield bearer in the Old Testament, you're not reading some puny, scrawny kid. You see, a shield bearer had to be someone who was just as strong as the warrior because they were the one who not only carried the shield, they were also the one who had to carry the armor. So a shield bearer could be called into battle to carry the armor for whoever it is they were trying to carry the armor for. We also know that a shield bearer could also be the one in the army who would hold the shield for purposes of defense while the person they were protecting was doing the attacking. We also know that a shield bearer was so well trained in carrying armor and carrying a shield that they knew how to use that shield as a weapon themselves. So we're not talking some nine-year-old child carrying 
carrying armor for a great warrior, we're talking about another great warrior who is there to defend the leader, who is there to attack if necessary. These were two soldiers who were prepared for battle. Now think about that for a moment. And think about what our response would be if we sat in a cave and the man with the sword looked at us and said, we are heavily outnumbered. We are heavily outgunned, but we're going to attack. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's me sitting in that cave and I know that you know that I know that I am just as trained as you are, I'm not quite confident I'm going to follow that order. In fact, if it's just me and you in that cave, no one said we had to walk out of this cave together. No one said, hey, shield bearer, you are responsible for making sure Jonathan makes it back to King Saul. I had four miles to think about some great story about how Jonathan died, even though I know I'm probably the one that killed him in the cave. But notice what happens here. Jonathan asks and wants to do the unthinkable. Pay attention to this. Because Jonathan wanted to do what only God could do in this moment. You see, here's the reality. When we get to the end of the story, notice it's not Jonathan that's getting the credit. It's God. God is the one who deserves the glory. God is the one who deserves the praise. That's why two men were able to defeat an entire army. So here's the question for us when we think about Jonathan for a moment. When was the last time we prayed? When was the last time we prepared? When was the last time we, pre we planned for God to do the unthinkable? When was the last time we prayed prayers that were so great that they could only be answered or explained by God intervening and by God working? I mean, think about it for a moment. Look around this room for a moment. When was the last time we prayed to see this place filled with people who needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? When was the last time we prayed for people to come in this place who either needed to be challenged by the word, encouraged by the word, or edified by the word? When was the last time we prayed prayers that only God could answer? Well, back to our text for a moment. The shield bearer could have responded any way he wanted to. He was alone in a cave with one man with one sword. He too also had a weapon himself. Granted, it wasn't a sword, it was a shield, but he still knew how to use the shield as a weapon. And so the shield bearer had a choice to make here. And notice what the shield bearer says. He says this, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. For behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Now before we break this passage down, I want to make sure we clear up something here. A lot of people see this passage um, right here in verse 7, and they see the part that says, Do all that is in your heart. And they want to say things like this. You see, the Bible clearly tells us that we are called to follow our hearts. Okay, if that is your takeaway from verse 7, you are missing verse 7. 
The Bible does not teach us to follow our hearts. In fact, the Bible teaches quite the opposite. The Bible teaches us that from the heart overflows all wickedness. It is the heart that is the root of all evil. So when we tell people to follow your heart, we are literally saying to them, step into sin. Because that's what happens with our hearts. You see, if we are not constantly tuning our heart to the Word of God, if we are not constantly forcing ourselves to come back to the truth of the Word of God, then our heart will lead us to sin. If you don't believe me, answer this question. Where does pride come from? The heart. Where does lust come from? The heart. Where does greed come from? The heart. Where does envy or malice come from? It starts here within the heart. You see, when we read the shield bearer saying to Jonathan, do all that is in your heart, the shield bearer is acknowledging that Jonathan is in tune with what God desires. So maybe the better thing we need to say is this. Instead of telling people to follow your heart, maybe we should say to them something like this. You go and do as the Lord has commanded. You go and do as the Lord desires. And if I say, well, I don't know what that is, help me find it. Let me go ahead and tell you, there's no self-help book that's going to help them find that. You point them back to the one guide that they need is Jesus Christ, and he can be found in the Word of God. Let us point people back to this truth. So again, when the shield bearer is saying this, do all that is in your heart, he is speaking to Jonathan saying, tune your heart to God. And if your heart is tuned to God, then do what it is you desire because what you desire is what God desires. You see, that's how we know when we are in tune with God. When all of a sudden our desires match the call and the desire that he has according to his word, then we are beginning to get it. But then notice what the shield bearer says. He says to Jonathan, for behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Notice he didn't look at Jonathan and say, you have lost your mind. (laughs) Notice he didn't say to Jonathan, hey, that's a great idea. Let's pray about it. Notice he didn't say to Jonathan, hey, Jonathan, that's good. And then he let Jonathan get a running start out of the cave and then whap, hit him with the shield. He didn't do that either. He said to Jonathan, for I am with you heart and soul. In other words, the shield bearer says to Jonathan, Jonathan, I am locking arms with you. Jonathan, I will stand with you. Jonathan, I will be with you no matter what happens until the very end. Could you imagine for a moment what that must have been like for Jonathan and the shield bearer. 
Can you imagine for a moment what our response as a local church should be when we read these words? You see, here's the reality. If we are truly a body of believers, if we are truly members of God's local community, then we need to be people who are willing to say that we are for each other. We need to be people who willingly say, look, we may not always agree. We may not always get along. We may cheer for different teams. We may like different stuff during the week. But when it comes to the calling of God, when it comes to the Word of God, when it comes to the mission and the call of God, then we will lock arms together and say, no matter what happens, I am with you. You see, we need to pause for a moment and reflect. We need to look around, not only in our churches, but in so many churches around us. You see, in churches around us, and not only churches around us, but sometimes even in our own church, we can see a lot of infighting that begins to happen. We can see a lot of conversations and comments that are made behind people's backs, behind closed doors. We see gossip that begins to tear apart a church. We see that lies begin to spread that ultimately rip apart a church. Churches could then be influenced by the negativity that's happening within their own walls that ultimately leads to a lack of following the leadership that God has put in place in the church. And the reality reality is, if we are not careful, I am not speaking of the universal church. I am speaking to what can happen here at Southside if we are not locked arm and arm together. You see, this can be our story too. We too can become a church divided when we begin fighting one another. Because you see what happens when we begin fighting one another is we begin to focus inward. And when we begin to focus inward, then the devil has us right where he wants us. And that is this. We are now focused on ourselves as opposed to the commission that Jesus Christ gave us in Matthew chapter 28. We need to remain focused on the gospel. You see, as we've already read this morning, we've been called to be together as one. We have been called to lock arms with one another no matter the cost. As we read in Psalm 133 verse 1, notice what it says again, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. You see that is the call of every believer. Again, we're not always going to agree. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect. It doesn't mean we have to be dressed a certain way. In fact, we are probably going to argue. We are probably going to disagree. We are probably going to fight. But if we're going to fight for anything and be passionate about that fighting, then may we fight for unity within the church and may we fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ to continue to spread. But you see, Jonathan and the shield bearer, their story doesn't end here. It keeps going there from 1 Samuel chapter 14 verses 8 through 10. We see that Jonathan reveals his plan to the shield bearer. Now, they are going to step out against the odds, and if they are called to fight by the Philistines, then they were going to answer that call. Now, again, the shield bearer has just now heard the plan. The plan is simple. We're going to reveal ourselves to them. We're going to show them it's just me and you, and then if they call us down to fight, if they call us to their field to fight, then shield bearer, we're going to go down there and we're going to fight them. Again, if you don't know how this story ends, that sounds like a horrible plan. But then notice what happens in verses 11 through 15. 
We learn that the two men are called out. They then run out. They attack. And then by God's sovereign grace, according to God's sovereign plan, the first strike of Jonathan and the shield bearer struck down 20 men. That strike led to chaos that was caused throughout the camp. The earth began to quake. Again, this is the intervention of God. And then the Philistines thought that they had been heavily attacked and they fled the field not knowing it was a fight that was started and led by two people doing the will of God. You see, this is the importance of locking arms together. You see, when we lock arms together as one, then we can say, for the glory of God, for the good of the church, I will lock arms with you, my brother in Christ. I will lock arms with you, my sister in Christ. I will stand with you. I am for you, and I am with you, heart and soul. You see, we need to be willing to serve one another for the good of the local body. We need to be willing to serve one another together as one for the good of the local church and ultimately for the glory of God, knowing and looking forward to what it is that God is doing because we can celebrate what he has done and knowing what he has done, we can now praise him because he can and he will do it again. You see, we need to be people willing to pray for one another. We need to be people who willingly and boldly ask God for his sovereign plan to be done in this place. Not our own plans or our own desires, but praying, God, your will and your will alone be done. And then we need to wait and watch as God answers in a way that only he can. And then watch him intervene to do his word and his will within our midst. And so here's the question for us from 1 Samuel 14. Are we ready for that moment? Do we walk into church excited, anticipating what it is that God will do? Do we come to church prepared to hear a word from him according to his truth? Well, the reality is before we can even answer that question, we have to answer our first question, which is this. Are we willing as brothers and sisters in Christ to stand with one another? Are we willing as brothers and sisters in Christ to say, no matter what, I will lock arms with you, heart and soul? Now, we need to realize this is not a light commitment, but it is what we are called to do. Now, notice this commitment didn't just end with the story of Jonathan and his shield bearer in 1 Samuel 14. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 28, you get to verse 20. Jesus, after commanding the the apostles to go out and make disciples, to then lead people, to baptize people, and then to teach them the ways of God, he then has this moment where he sends them out on their mission, and before he does, notice his words to them in verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you hear Jesus' words there? You see, Jesus is saying that he has a plan for us. 
Jesus in the Great Commission is saying that he has a plan for this place. And so now the question becomes, what part of that plan will we play? Will we be unified in the calls for Jesus Christ in this place, or will we allow our divisions to continue to separate us? And then notice this about Christ. By the time we get to Matthew 28, we've already seen it in the crucifixion, but then we again see it in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, and know that I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying the same thing as the shield bearer. He is saying, and I am with you, heart and soul. You know, truthfully, I think Spurgeon sums it up best when he says, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide the saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. So since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. So in this new year, in 2020, may we at Southside, may we as believers in Christ live out what it is that we believe and may we be in fellowship with one another so that we may stand together and cry out for the will of God under the umbrella of Jesus Christ that we are together as one. Let's pray.